Hi, I'm Martin McDonald. And I'm Sophia Fabili. The Thousand Islands Playhouse may have closed its doors this season, but our podcast lives on. While the artists are waiting in the wings and aren't on our stages, we're connecting with them at home to hear how they're exercising their creativity during the pandemic. Welcome to the Thousand Islands Playhouse podcast, at home edition. Welcome back to the Thousand Islands Playhouse podcast. I am very, very excited for our podcast guest today. Nicole Stamp is a TV host, actor, director, writer, and activist. She hosted, wrote, and directed 10 seasons of the Gemini-winning educational show TVO Kids, and she's a cast member on the mega-hit web series Carmilla, which has 70 million views on YouTube. As an actor, Nicole has appeared in Hudson and Rex, The Handmaid's Tale, A Lock and Key for Netflix, and the video game Assassin's Creed Origins. Nicole also voiced many cartoons, including The Redonkulous Race, Rusty's Rivets, and the upcoming comedy Doomsday Brothers coming out this September. Nicole's essay on hashtag MeToo was shared 70,000 times on Facebook, then commissioned by CNN, where in just six weeks, it became one of CNN's most read articles of the year. Nicole is currently writing and directing on the YouTube original series Lockdown, and in partnership with Sinking Ship Entertainment, she's developing an original media literacy TV show. Stamp is on Twitter at Nicole Stamp, and she once played dodgeball for 36 hours without sleeping, earning a Guinness World Record, a feat she does not recommend. (laughs) Nicole was also slated to star in our production of Every Brilliant Thing, which I was to direct her in, and we are so, so thrilled to have her on the podcast today. Hi, Nicole. Hi, Sophia. Hi, Martha. Hi, both. Good. So good, so good, so happy to have you here. Um, let's Thank jump, you for having me. Yeah, let's jump right into our first section so we can uh, we can find out. Uh, we always ask our guests to choose a drink of choice, alcoholic or non-alcoholic, um, that mm-hmm. we can share together so that we will feel like we're together even though we are apart and only on Zoom and a phone call. So what are we drinking today, Nicole? We are drinking cold coffee with milk mm. from a glass with a straw. I'm a glass with a straw. And we have just, Sophia and I have some as well, but we have just discovered one of our major differences, Nicole, you and I, which is that I love ice and you don't. Yeah, I don't (laughs) love ice. I have sensitive teeth. I used to love ice. I was more anemic in my past and Mm -hmm. I loved ice when I was anemic-er. But apparently craving ice is a sign of anemia and I started taking better iron supplements and I craved ice less. Nice. Do you have like a, so do you, like you brew your own coffee? Do you have like a, like a coffee that you love? You know what? Uh, President's Choice, I hate mm. to shill a brand, but they make an iced coffee that comes in a carton oh. uh, sold near the milk, and it's delicious, and it's really fast. So I mostly drink that, but yes. I'll pick any. I'm, I'm not picky about coffee Anything. at all. Anything. Like <laughs> nice. Milk. And what yeah. about the milk? Is it is it lactose milk, lactose-free milk? No, straight up whatever. 2% from a cow, whatever. Amazing. But I mean, any plant milks are fine, too. Yeah. I'm Cheers, open. Nicole. I just think, yes. I'm most, mostly just drinking it as caffeine. It's not really for the taste. So true. <laughs> cheers, <laughs> cheers, cheers, cheers. So uh, set the scene for us a little bit. We're here in Gananoque in the MyFM studio. Where are you? I live in uh, the west side of Toronto. I am sitting in my living room. Uh, and it's a sunny day and this room gets really nice light. So yeah. I like being in here. I know you're so lucky it's nice and sunny there. It's a little gloomy here in Gananoque today. It is. <laughs> Not in our hearts, though. Just yeah. outside. <laughs> Never in your heart. <laughs> um, so, yeah, Martin and I conceived this podcast this year to talk to the artists who would have been joining us at the Playhouse. And our big question is, how are you sustaining yourself creatively, emotionally, spiritually, all of the above during the pandemic? And, Nicole, we're really excited to have this conversation with you today. Can you tell us 
how have you been doing all that during the pandemic? Yeah, thanks. That's a great question. Well, first of all, I was really excited to be um, hired to come to Thousand Islands Playhouse and do the play Every Brilliant Thing with you two. And I'm so bummed that it didn't happen because of the pandemic. Uh, it's such an exceptional play. When you sent it to me, I thought, I, I can't really leave Toronto for that long, so I'm just going to say no. But I was like, well, I'll just see what the play is. Let <laughs> me just open it up and start reading. And literally within the third page, I was like, I'm going to go back in time and become a professional actor just so I can act in this play um, because I love the script so much and I have loved every time I've ever worked with you or encountered your work or talked to you, Sophia. The whole team looked amazing. The audition was such a joy. Um, Marta and I were scene partners for the audition and Brett and Sophia were in the room and it was just such a welcoming, collaborative. We had such a great conversation. Totally. The scenes were so fun. Um, the play just really felt like such a golden opportunity and I was really looking forward to it. And when the <laughs> pandemic hit, I was like, no! Nice. Well, Same. So it's, it's my deep hope Same. that at some point we, uh, we get the, uh, the team back together and, uh, do the show at another time because. Same here. I'm oh, down. What a joy. I'm down. It's a fun script. It's such a special script. It has such an important message and it communicates that message in such a creative, magical way. I think it really allows you to, um, create magic with the audience in a way that not every play does. I love, I love theater where there's no fourth wall. I really like communicating directly to the audience. Um, I have a live TV background that also really kind of went in that direction. So the fact that like in every brilliant thing, almost everyone in the audience basically gets a line and some people get a scene in the play. And it's so exciting to have that level of improv and magic where really anything could happen. And the whole room is is collaborating together to create the story. And I was so excited for the fun challenge and the connection with the audience that that allowed. So yeah, here's hoping that it comes totally. Yeah. I think the stars align. I think that that team, like, yeah, I mean, you've just said it all so beautifully. I'm not even going to try to rearticulate what you've just said, because you just said it perfectly, but I felt like that team and that show and you as the center of it was just like so electric and exciting. So I, I, Brett knows. Brett knows that I want to do the show and he wants to do it too. So (laughs) as soon as it's safe. And now now the audience, you sold it so well. Now the audience wants to see it too. Uh, Yeah. I think honestly, that's like the, I I think it would be the perfect show to do after or when it's safe to go back to the theater. I think we need to do it. Yeah. 100%. Totally. Um, In terms of what I've been doing for the pandemic, um, well, for the beginning part of it, I just kind of hold up. In a, like at the time there was some work being done um, on the house I live in so I was living in the basement and it was very like it, I remember that time just being kind of cold and gray and drab and uh, it was not it wasn't a super fun time for anybody I don't think um, and I was using social media a lot I was trying to have a lot of um, zoom conversations with friends where we would like schedule a zoom and sit down together and have a snack and talk something like what we're doing right now actually um, so that was great and then I found that once the Black Lives Matter protests started to really ramp up in frequency and intensity after George Floyd's murder, um, I found that a lot of people on social media were asking a lot of questions and posting a lot of things about their reactions to that news. And sometimes embedded in the questions that they were asking or the posts that they were making, I could see like a, a desire for some kind of answer or advice. And so I would sort of be really compelled to write something that addressed whatever the issue was that was being raised. And I find like, I mean, I've worked as a writer a lot. I've written a lot of kids TV. I've written a couple of plays um, and I've written some articles, but I find like sitting down in front of a blank computer screen a bit daunting. Like I never quite know what to say. I don't, I didn't like hatch fully formed with a bunch of articles cooking inside of me. But when I see a specific person ask a specific question that suddenly 
makes me realize that there's an entire demographic of people who align with that person who might have the same question. And suddenly having the question makes me sort of understand like what an answer or what a piece of advice might be that leads towards an answer. And then it's easy to write. Like I, I find like answering somebody's question on Facebook becomes an article with like no stress. It just falls out of me because I'm just having a conversation with a specific person. And I mean, it ties back to as an actor, the, the very first question that you are supposed to answer as any actor approaching any scene is who are you talking to and why? And I think when I imagined myself going into journalism, I always thought I didn't really know who I was talking to. And I think some of the why of certain kinds of journalism is to fill column inches and sell ad space. So that never quite made me want to write. Like I just was never excited to write under that paradigm. But then when the questions became really important, like how do I help stop racism? That's a pretty important question. And when I knew the people who were asking the question because we were Facebook friends and I knew them in real life, suddenly writing an answer was easy. And then the Facebook format is so small that it wasn't super daunting to write an answer in that small window. And then based on, as I was writing it, I'd write like something small in real time, people would like it or respond to it. And I would see like feedback coming back in that allowed it to feel like a conversation. Um, and I could see, okay, well, if this person didn't understand this angle of what I was saying. There's a subset of people over there that didn't understand it. Could I address that in some way? So basically posts that I would write that would start off as three sentences would expand to thousand word essays. And if you look back at the history of my Facebook posts, they are like edited hundreds of times because as each person contributes something, I'll think, oh, I should have addressed that up there or I can make this part more clear. Um, and I, it's almost like I crowdsource an audience for an article. So the Me Too piece that you mentioned in that intro, thanks for, <laughs> thanks for introducing me. Um, <laughs> the Me Too article that I wrote was kind of the first one that was back in 2017. And so I work in film and TV. I'm friends with all these actors. And uh, Harvey had just been outed as an abuser. And it was starting to bubble around in the Toronto theater and film communities that there are abusers in the midst of those communities as well that have also been able to slide under the radar. Mm -hmm. And suddenly all these women were posting me too, me too, me too, me too. And all these men were like, Wait, all what? of you? Yeah. Like you're every age, you're every demographic, you're every woman I know is posting me too, me too. Like who is assaulting you all and what can I do to help? And that became like a pretty obvious question to me. Like what can you do to help make a climate in which fewer women are sexually assaulted and sexually harassed. But that's a pretty obvious question. Like, I know the answer to that. So I wrote a little list just in a, in a little blurt. I wrote maybe like five or six things that men could do that would make the climate better for the women around them. Um, simple as like, say to another guy, that's not cool if they're being sexist. Or when you speak to your colleagues, do not use pet names. When you introduce them at panels, do not call them the lovely you know, Lisa, call them, this is Lisa, our head of sales. Um, just role modeling the kind of respect for a woman that you might have for a man <laughs> is a revolutionary thing. Um, and I talked a bit about seeking consent and sexual encounters. And then I, so I wrote these like five or six little things and I went grocery shopping. And I came home and I had, <laughs> it had been shared a hundred times and it had like, you know, 75 comments on it. Uh, and I, People, people's comments added things, like made me want to add things, so I amended it a little bit. And it basically turned into a list of, I think, about 15 or 18 things that men could do to try to help um, you know, improve the climate for the women around them. It got shared 50,000 times, and then somebody from CNN messaged me and said, a colleague of CNN sent me your Facebook piece 
and my 16-year-old daughter sent me your Facebook piece. Wow. And those two subsets of people are both looking at the same Facebook piece. I think that there's a real voice there, and we would like to publish it. Uh, would you like to rewrite it? So I rewrote it a little bit to make it a bit more formal and a bit less sort of insular for the Toronto community. Um, and CNN published it, and then it became one of their top articles of 2017. So it was published like at the very end of October 2017, and by early December, it was one of the top uh, top articles of the year. So it just was massively shared. I got epically trolled. Oh, my goodness. So 70,000 people shared it because I guess they liked it. But I would say 8,000 people commented directly on my page. Many of those were nasty comments from men. It was interesting to see the comments rolling in because every night, um, as everybody, how do I say this? As everybody went to bed, there would be like a rolling response across America as like the as sunset went across like the continent. So everyone in Toronto would go to sleep, but I would start hearing from people in the center of the country and then hearing from people on the West Coast. And I could tell from people's profiles where they lived and what time of night it was. And every night in every place at around two in the morning, horrible men would start to message me. And I got rape threats and I got racist comments and I got nasty, nasty complaints. A number, a disturbing number of men said, when I said, one of my big points was in all sexual encounters, you should seek enthusiastic consent, which means that your sexual partner should be participating equally. So your partner should be looking you in the eye. They should be smiling. They should be helping take their own clothes off. They should be sometimes climbing on top. Like they should be participating actively in the sexual encounter. Mm -hmm. Yeah. No means no. We all have heard that before. But frozen silence means no. Avoiding eye contact means no. Changes in breathing often mean no. Stiffening up means no. Disassociating and glazing over means no. Mm -hmm. Silence means no. And if you are getting those signals from a partner, I said, it's your job to stop what you are doing and ask if they are okay and back it up. Back it right up to sitting on the couch together talking. Um, You don't get to be having sex with that person anymore if frozen silence is what they're giving you. And the number of men who said, if I had to wait for my wife or like the women I date to give me enthusiastic consent, I would never get to have sex again. (laughs) Okay, well then you... Uh, I was like, you don't even know how much you're telling on yourself by saying that. Like what a horrifying idea that you have all these sexual encounters and nobody's enthusiastic to be having sex with you. Something's up with your approach. Terrifying. How... Yeah. So I got 8,000 comments on Facebook. I responded to every single one. If they were positive, I just gave it a like. If they were negative, I engaged and tried to counter whatever nonsense they were on. I basically stayed awake for like four days responding to messages. And it was the sort of birth of me deciding that it was time to start speaking up. And I had spent a long time not speaking up in my life. I I was very aware of injustice of every kind, but it seemed very unsafe to speak up. And when Me Too happened... Seeing the number of people in our society who are oppressed by the patriarchy, you, you sort of go, you can't really be quiet anymore when you yeah. see that. It's like affecting so many people so viciously. Who is it protecting to be quiet? I mean, we're in the majority. The majority of people have been sexually assaulted. So why, what, who am I being quiet for? And who am I yeah. protecting by being quiet? And who am mm-hmm. I harming by being quiet? Mm-hmm. So I decided I was going to start speaking up about that. And then when the race protests started to, to really like gain momentum, Again, it was like an obvious time where it was like, well, I've always been quiet about this in the past. It's, I'm not doing that anymore. Um, so I started speaking out more intensely. And then because I've come up with this Facebook model with my Me Too post, that's how most of my stuff gets born. Is I, I'll like write an answer to somebody on Facebook and I'll find myself having a lot to say. It happens a lot on Facebook, like several times a day, I write long comments in different groups or with different conversations. And when it's at a certain level of 
I, I know I have a lot to say suddenly and I discovered this vein of content that I didn't know I had an opinion that was so strong or such strong advice about this topic, I usually will like copy paste it and save it. Um, and then later I might pitch it to a magazine editor or to an online editor and try to sell it as an article or it becomes fodder for a script for the media literacy show that I'm developing. But it was interesting because I think without Facebook, I might not have ever become a writer because I think as somebody with an actor's disposition, I really needed that two-way conversation to be happening. And totally. Facebook was the real-time venue where enough of my friends are always online that even at three in the morning, if I write something, people are responding to it within minutes. And it allows me to see if I'm saying something that needs to be said and saying it properly. Mm-hmm. And that's one of the questions we had for you, actually, was, you know, why Facebook? What does that platform give you? Marta, I'm totally sealing your question. No, I'm so I'm sorry. <laughs> but um, I know that we had um, uh, we had two artists on earlier, um, Kwaku and Emmerjade, and they were talking about how they use Instagram for, for their activism and what that platform gives them. And I think you've just given such an, like, a great answer to why Facebook works for you, because it gives this exchange, this instant um, kind of communication between two people. And I love that you're Mm-hmm. workshopping and you're editing your posts and you're responding to new things in, in in and that's become like a process for your writing it's like fascinating mm-hmm. and I think consent is really important so for me if I were to buttonhole somebody and say I wrote an article would you give me feedback on it that's a pretty obnoxious way for me to uh, milk that friendship for labor right I don't really feel comfortable doing that unless I have a very strong reciprocal relationship with the person in which case I assume that at some point I'll be reading their article too and that's fine um But when I write something on Facebook, if you're not in the mood to engage with that content or you're not in the mood to engage with me, which both of which are completely valid positions, you can just scroll by. If you want to engage, here I am. And the second you want to stop engaging, you can leave. So I feel like it's a way to get a lot of people's opinions without um, imposing on anybody. It's like you've created a lab, but everybody can opt out if they want to. Because I feel like you're probably also, you're engaging with so many people also that aren't even aren't even responding like that there's people that are that are having full thoughts or conversations with with like I mean like Sophia and I like we could have had a conversation about one of your posts and have neither of us have commented on it and we just have a we have a dialogue about it that it sparks conversation in a in a, mm-hmm. on a platform like Facebook yeah and yeah just, it's am- yeah it's amazing Sorry. like I, I meet people who like have read stuff that I wrote that I'm not Facebook friends with I don't know them some of my stuff has been shared to friends in other like in uh, the states who like live in completely different paradigms than me and I it's a girl I went to Queens with a girl I went to university with shared your May 28th post I saw it really? and I was like oh, oh. it's Nicole's post <laughs> I know it's nice to hear that it's being yeah. shared it, yeah. it's kind of scary too because there's people out there who don't agree and I'm putting myself out there I use my real name I use my real picture Mm -hmm. Um, I'm pretty careful with things like my address and my personal life but if you were really diligent it's surprising how much you can find from somebody's online presence Um, so it's a risk right like I'm probably on some people's shit lists and sorry for saying that word I'm probably it's totally fine it's it's a risk I'm probably on some people's lists for people that they have you know they do not feel good about me um, because I'm speaking about, you know, subjects that are difficult or that people have very strong opinions on or can feel very defensive about their pa- their place in those conversations. Totally. Um, so, yeah, it's definitely a risk, but I think it's worth it. I mean, there's an amazing Audrey Lord, uh, excuse me, Audrey Lord quote where she says, um, when we speak, we are afraid, but when we do not speak, we are still afraid. <laughs> So it's better to speak. Right. Like, it's totally. true. I, I didn't feel great before I was saying anything. And sometimes saying something doesn't feel good now, for sure. Um, but it feels better to say something than not. And it feels, 
I feel like I spent a long time being really afraid to speak up and um, A, I didn't feel better and B, I didn't feel like I was aligned. Like I didn't feel like my actions were aligned with my uh, beliefs. And now I do feel like my actions are more in alignment with my beliefs and that makes me feel better about myself. So there's like two benefits. So there's a benefit of thinking that you're helping people or being able to change something. Um, and then there's the benefit of feeling like your actions are in accordance with your beliefs. And I really strongly believe that 2020 is a civil rights year. We're going to look back on 2020 yes. like we looked back on the year like Rosa Parks sat at the front of the bus. And there's going to be a reckoning where, you know, someday someone's going to ask you, what were you doing that yeah. crazy year when that guy was in office and that pandemic was raging and George Floyd had his neck crushed? Like, what did you do? Mm-hmm. And I don't want to say, oh, I scrolled Twitter. Mm-hmm. I don't want that to be my answer. So I'm I'm going to stick my neck out further than I'm comfortable because this is the time to do it. There has never been a time in my lifetime that was more important to say something than now. Totally. Well, and I also, I just like on a personal note, I really appreciate the the posting that you made about not unfollowing and blocking people and engaging in conversation with people because I think that that's like as painful as it can be is so important for for everyone to make sure that they are getting the the point across to people that might you might be able to not convince but to 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 show them a different perspective perspective, I know I totally learned that from you Nicole to like because I think before I would just block people or unfriend people like oh god what do they think about you know xyz but now to actually say okay I'm gonna take it upon myself to call them out or to side message them or to comment right on their posts like I did not have the courage to do that before and that's something you've totally inspired me to do 100%. Thanks. Thanks. I mean, the way I see it is like, if there's a form of oppression happening out there and the way it affects me the most is that I feel uncomfortable having a Facebook conversation about it. Yeah. There's other people who are like getting killed. Yeah. Yeah. So I have to say something. So for me, like, I mean, I always engage about everything basically, but I think like, you know, transphobia, homophobia, like I don't really present as queer and I'm cis. I'm not trans. So when I go out, people don't look at me and, and enact homophobia against me. So I'm pretty safe. If I say don't be homophobic or don't be transphobic, no one's going to come and attack me because I said that. So it's my job to say something. I have to say something because if the worst, if the worst that homophobia ever affects me is a few uncomfortable conversations, homophobia is literally getting other people killed. I have to say something. So I really feel like there's a lot of benefit in speaking up. And I mean, I've been doing it for a while. And at this point I have a folder, a saved folder of messages of people who have changed their views and come back later to thank me for saying something to them and apologize for the way they acted when I said something. I've had some pretty nasty social media dust ups. You get to a point too, if you do it enough where you're less uncomfortable doing it, you start to understand the tactics that people use in these conversations so that you can sidestep them or call them out. Like you almost have a set of scripts you can say. So if somebody reacts in a certain way, like International Women's Day, where's International Men's Day? Like, I have an answer for that question. I don't have to think about what I'm going to say when someone says that. I just type it out. Mm -hmm. And the answer is, uh, or like, you know, all these women saying me too, men get sexually assaulted too. Don't you care about them? Mm -hmm. That's that's an answer that I got a lot. And I was like, well, men do get sexually assaulted. And that's not fair. And that's terrible. And that's not right. And I do believe that's wrong. Did you talk about men getting sexually assaulted before there was this conversation about women getting sexually assaulted? Right. If you talked about this a month ago, then I'm, I'm okay with you talking about yeah. it now. But if you're only, because that shows me that you actually care about male victims of sexual assault. 
But if Me Too happened and you got uncomfortable hearing all these women sharing these stories and you decided to bring up men like male assault victims as a way to shut down a conversation about female assault victims, then you don't genuinely care about male assault victims. You're using them as a tool to silence another group. And I don't think that's right. And I'm not, I don't have time for it today. So right now the conversation is about women. We're going to have one conversation mm-hmm. at a time. If you would like to have a conversation about men and who have been sexually assaulted mm-hmm. in two weeks, I guarantee I'll be on your page supporting you. But if you only do it today, I can't see another motive than to shut people up. Yeah. So like, I know how to say that now. So mm-hmm. if that conversation happens, I just have to say that. I don't have to really think about it. I don't have to get really upset about it. I just know what to say. Yeah. And I know what to say because I've read lots of conversations on social media. When a conversation has come up, I've researched it. And like, you just get so much better at having these conversations because they follow a really, there's like 20 things people do when yeah. they're trying to oppress somebody on social media <laughs> and you just recognize them. And then you just say, oh, you're doing that thing people do. You, sh- you probably shouldn't do that. Yeah. And then yeah. everyone else goes, ooh, <laughs> goes back on track because yeah. you brought it back. Nicole, can um, you write a post that's so much a, less stressful? Sorry, I just interrupted you. I didn't mean to. Okay. Sorry. Can you write a post or an article where you're t- where you show all the different tactics, like break down all the different tactics that people use <laughs> to oppress people on social media? Yeah, I guess One I day. should. I mean, I feel like I'm not. I certainly am not the first person to point this out. Part yeah. of the reason I can identify these so quickly is that I read other people who have done the same very skillfully online. Um, but it's like, it's always the same. They say, okay, well, what about the other group? Yeah. So for example, Black Lives Matter. Well, what about all lives matter? Yeah, exactly. What about cop lives matter? Yeah. Um, so the answer to that is, once again, if you were talking about all lives mattering last week, I would, I would believe that that was a valid thing that you cared about. But the fact that you are only bringing it up to silence Black Lives Matter tells me that you're doing it as a tactic because you're uncomfortable. So mm-hmm. I think that's not a valid way to have this conversation. Mm-hmm. Or when people say, don't say everyone's racist i'm the furthest thing from a racist then my answer to that would be you know what you're doing is you're taking a conversation about racism and you're turning it into a conversation about yourself Mm -hmm. and instead of discussing racism which is affecting some people which i think you even agree racism exists most people do we've turned it now into a referendum on your character where you're going to tell me that you once dated a person of this race and you have a nephew of this race we're going to talk about your resume and your life yeah. But now we're not talking about racism anymore. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So if you think racism exists and you think racism is important to talk about, we need to decenter the conversation from what a good person you are yeah. and talk about the fact of racism. And if what I said about racism, if you don't feel like it applies to you, okay. Yeah. I mean, I don't necessarily agree, but just close your mouth and let other people have the conversation. Yeah. You don't have to derail it. And yeah. like all of these tactics, like they just, yeah, there's like 20 of them again and again. You could play bingo. Like people have made online bingo cards that you're like, yeah. Someone has derailed the conversation. Someone has said, what about this group? Someone has said, I'm not a racist, but like, yeah. it's, yeah. it's just a set led. It's, it's um, people's reactions to conversations about uncomfortable topics follow like a pretty uh, well-described pathway from defensiveness to anger, to shock and outrage, to the desire to help. And, and you can like, you can figure out the steps someone's at by how they respond and then you can respond to them in kind. And it's, it almost is like a formula. Like everybody who hears about a new form of oppression pretty much responds the same way. At first they're like, they're like angry that the conversation is even happening. They feel defensive that they didn't know that it was happening and that maybe Mm -hmm. they're being implicated in it. They think back to things that they said that maybe were bad. Um, then they're, they're like, they sort of get on board, but they're uncomfortable. And then they get on board a little bit more, but in a more performative way. And then eventually they might be moved to actual action that makes a real difference in the world. And you have to like, you kind of have to go through all those steps. Mm-hmm. And so you can basically like figure out, okay, this person is discussing this issue with this level of comfort. So let's bring them up one level. And it's just a set of conversations to have again and again. And every time you have the conversations, 
the person you talk to, they won't change in that moment because people don't like to give up. They don't like to turn, do a full turn in public. It's uncomfortable. But what you say will matter and they'll think about it. And the next time they engage, they'll engage a little bit differently. And that'll happen 20 times or so. And then they'll go, oh, I think I was wrong back then. I've revised that opinion now. But every time you have that conversation, the person you talk to has a little bit of a change. They might change like two or three percent. And the people that are watching have a little percentage of change. And then the people that are affected by that oppression, if you have a post about don't be transphobic and there's a trans person who reads that, they feel a little bit less depressed and hopeless. They feel like, oh, someone gets it. Someone's going to bat for me. You're giving them a gift of like validating their struggle and seeing them and, and believing that they believe equity. And so you're benefiting all these people that you don't even know you're benefiting who are reading your post and not saying anything. So it's always worth it to have public conversations about this stuff because I really genuinely feel like it makes a difference. But it's not enough. Conversations are not enough. Like um, the thing that matters, I don't actually care if every single white person becomes a little bit nicer. Anti-racism is not a self-improvement project for white people. It's mm-hmm. not about being a little bit more tolerant or saying a, saying a word better. <laughs> it's about yeah. money yeah. and power yeah. of being withheld from BIPOC and specifically viciously from black and indigenous people. Mm-hmm. If your action is not moving money or power yeah. towards black and indigenous people, your action is performative. Performativity has some place because it, it does kind of slowly change the culture. Yeah. But what changes the culture faster is giving leadership, power, and money to people who have historically been denied it. So if yeah. you're not doing those things, it's not really anti-racism. It's just, it's just culture. Nicole's going to read an ex- excerpt, excerpt from her CNN article, which gives other really amazing, actionable um, uh, items for people to be thinking about. Um, and what I love so much about Nicole's writing is that she does give such like tangible action. Like, this is something you can do. This is something you can do. If you're not doing these things, then you're not actively being anti-racist. But before we do that, I really want to give a little, uh, I want to ask a question about um, Bias Box because I would love you to give up. Yeah, because yeah, it's so <laughs> awesome. This is like another way that you are going to bat for people and that you are stepping up and actually doing something. And it's so fantastic. I was wondering, I, I'm throwing you a curveball, but I was wondering if you wanted to give cool. us, it, get, tell us what it is. Thank you. Um, so the Bias Box, B-Y-U-S, by us, because it's made by us to dismantle bias. Um, The Bias Box is a monthly subscription box for families, uh, and it's a set of tools to help raise uh, inclusive, anti-racist children. So the box is uh, for three different age groups, for zero to two for babies, uh, for three to five preschoolers, and for six to eight elementary school kids. And there's also a grown-up box. And so each month, a box comes in the mail that contains a toy that has representation. So each box is built around a theme. So the first box was the black box. So it contains a toy that gives good representation of that community. So in this case, it's a black doll that's the appropriate kind of doll for the age of each kid. It wouldn't always be a doll, but it just happened to be for this box. Then there's a book with a protagonist who's a member of that group, or it focuses on that community, written by a member of that group. Um, and then there's a gamer activity. Usually we design it and we commission artists from that community to do the illustrations for the activity. In this case, for babies, we made these beautiful emotion cards that have like different baby faces making all the emotions. You can show them to your baby and say, this is what surprise looks like. This baby is happy. How does this baby feel? Oh, this baby's frustrated. What could they do? You can talk about emotions and build emotional literacy with your kids. And all of the babies in all of the cards are beautifully illustrated black babies having these emotions. So your baby who might only see whatever race of people they live with, 
the most, especially during a pandemic, is seeing black faces with relatable emotions. You can invent little backstories. This baby is sad because their tower fell down. Um, and it allows the children to feel uh, reciprocal humanity with people that maybe they don't necessarily interact with all the time in real life. And it allows black children to feel represented by the artwork around them in their house. Um, so there's a book, a game, a toy, and then there's a page of discussion prompts to have with your kids that talk about what kids are learning at that age and how you can frame topics of race and racism that are appropriate for the, that age category. So for example, what if your kid, if you're on the bus and your kid says, look, a black lady, what should you say? That's a conversation that happens at some point with most kids with some identity or other, maybe not black, but maybe like there's a wheelchair or there's a whatever. Um, so what would you say to your kid in that moment? Um, I give prompts for talking about racism with kids in an age appropriate way, choosing media for your kids that has good representation of uh, the community in question. And uh, there's an interview with a family from that community where we talk about what their the kid's childhood was like and what the parent's parenting strategy was like and what are some of the challenges they faced. Um, and it's sort of set up like a magazine. And then you also get the toys and the games. And then every box sold, uh, we make a donation that goes to the community in question, the charity that supports that community. We have a call for action page that tells you if you want to get involved in this community's calls for action, here are some things that you can do. Here are some organizations you can donate to or activities you can do with your kids. And every box is built around a different theme. It's curated by a member of that community. And we try to engage exclusively illustrators, artists from that community so that people from that community are actually getting representation and getting payment from working on the box. And so we just did the first one, uh, which was the black box. Right now we're working on a box um, for LGBTQ plus parents um, and a box for trans and non-binary identities. And we're going to move on to do a disability box, an autism box, different boxes of all different equity-seeking groups, basically. Um, and it was co-founded by me and one of my neighbors who's another member of an equity-seeking group. And we just really think it's important to, it's such a hard, it's so hard for parents to research and find great books on every level of representation. There are so many things out there. Some things look like they're about a group, but they're not a good representation of the group. Mm -hmm. Even for me, as somebody who thinks really, who really thinks about this stuff, trying to find a list of 12 books that had good black representation took me four hours of searching and like reading books online and looking through the books and figuring who the authors were. And not every parent has that time to devote to every single possible equity seeking group that their kid might come across. So we do that labor for the, for the family and we engage people from that group. So for example, when we get to like the autism box where we're doing the trans box right now, I'm not trans, I'm not an expert in trans identities. We hired a trans curator um, who's also an educator and he's going to go through and he's going to choose the books and the toys and the he's going to curate the activity. And then my job is to help turn that into copy that's parenting and kid friendly. But I'm using his expertise and his research as the basis and his lived experience as the basis for everything that I write. So it's basically like a parenting guide so that your kid can be a good playmate or a good neighbor to people from different communities that they might not have met in their everyday life. It's called the Bias Box, B-Y-U-S Box. And we're on Instagram at Biasbox, and we have a website which is biasbox.com. <laughs> um, right Amazing. now, we're adding people to our waitlist. We're going to launch for real in November. We have a, a soft launch right now where 100 families are getting the boxes, and we're. It was so much work to write. I wrote 28 pages of original content about how to teach race to children, and it took so much research, so many consultations, finding the books. Like it was hours and hours and hours of labor and love went into this box. 
We just delivered them this past weekend, and the feedback is just starting to come in with people's testimonials of their kids opening the boxes and their kids fighting over the toys and the parents saying, like, oh, my God, I didn't know how to have this conversation. Now I do. It's been so rewarding, finally, after so much hard work. That's amazing. Congratulations. Thank you. That's incredible. Hey, November, I'll have to get November. it for my niece and nephew. I know. Yeah. We'll, we'll, sh- we'll share the link on yeah. our website to, or on, on our social so people can can access it. It's, it's incredible, Nicole. I think you are. Thank you. You're talking the talk. You're walking the walk. I. You're incredibly inspiring, big time. Oh, that's really nice yeah. to say. Thanks. Yeah. I really think it has to be action. I, it's, yeah. I'm not interested in learning. I just want action. I mean, I'm interested in learning to only as fuel for action. Yes. I don't want yeah. to sit back and passively learn about things. I want people to take action and make a change. Well, speaking of, would you honor us with reading an excerpt from that um, article <laughs> that you wrote for CNN, please? I would. Thanks for saying it's an honor. It's an honor for me to <laughs> have somebody listen. <laughs> so this article is called 18 Ways to Sustain the Fight Against Racism. It was published on CNN in July 2020. Um, so this is an excerpt from it. As the news cycle changes and the ongoing Black Lives Matter protests receive less coverage than they did a few weeks ago, it's crucial that we stay energized in this movement. In the words of the late civil rights, re- civil rights leader and congressman John Lewis, our struggle is not the struggle of a day, a week, a month, or a year. It is the struggle of a lifetime. Never, ever be afraid to make some noise and get in good trouble, necessary trouble. The protests are good trouble. And they continue because racial injustice continues. This article is a list of 18 things that you can do to take action against racism. So here, I'm just going to read a couple items from the list. Number 11, I will see color, including whiteness. For many people, hearing the word white feels uncomfortable, even confrontational. Many people unconsciously position white men as if they are the default human. They are unmarked by race or identity, and they hold opinions that are somehow neutral or unbiased. Meanwhile, everyone else is presented as other with biased opinions or identity politics. But avoiding the idea of whiteness or claiming that race doesn't matter actually shuts down important conversations about racism. If we are too uncomfortable to see color, we will misunderstand persistent patterns in how people of different colors are treated. I will accept discomfort. When discussing racism, defensive reactions are common, especially for beginners. These feelings will become more manageable with, re- with repeated exposure and deeper understanding. When emotions arise, resist the urge to react immediately. Sit with discomfort. Consider what status quo your feelings could be helping to maintain. Do not allow your discomfort to silence or sidetrack important conversations. Anti-racism work is often uncomfortable. Luckily, discomfort won't kill us. I will bring black people into positions of power. Ensure that your workplace recruits, hires, and promotes qualified black people and pay them generously. Research shows that managers choose to to pay black women just 62 cents to every dollar they would pay a white man for the same work. Ask your employer to provide anti-oppression training. Treat your black coworkers with appropriate respect, including introducing them using their full job titles and accolades. If you're invited to speak on or attend an all-white panel or an all-white theater season, suggest qualified people of color to add to the lineup. All workers have some influence, even if it's unofficial, over the success of their colleagues. Leverage your influence to boost the trajectories of black colleagues by highlighting their strengths and suggesting them for advancement. Equitably distributing professional power is one of the most valuable acts of allyship. I will donate money. 
find the nearest chapter of a large Black-led organization that's working to increase equity for Black and racialized people and donate generously. Support decriminalization and amnesty for minor cannabis charges, which disproportionately affect Black people. For the abolishment of cash bail in prison, which uh, disproportionately affects Black people. Support vocal boycotts of companies that use prison labor, again, which disproportionately affects Black men. And the dismantling of unfair voter ID laws. That's especially important for Americans right now because this election is going to be stolen with voter suppression. Agitate for the reallocation of police funding and police accountability. Contribute time and money to these causes and set your donations to recur monthly because dismantling anti-blackness and racism is a long-haul task. I will say to anyone who's listening and looking for where they can donate, Black Lives Matter is amazing. They have increased equity for all racialized people in Toronto, for young people, for disabled people, for queer people. Their scope of practice is so strong and has made such measurable differences in the safety of people in the Toronto community. It is, And, of course, that ripples out into all of the cities in southern Ontario. Um, Black Lives Matter Toronto and Black Lives Matter U.S. are both great places to donate money. Anti-racism work is not a means of personal self-improvement. The goal is not for each individual to become more loving or more tolerant. Anti-racist work must be a series of concrete actions that measurably shift power and money into a more equitable distribution. We need to dismantle unbalanced systems and rebuild them fairly. Every one of us has the ability to write to our leaders, to motivate our employers, to add our voices to this revolution, to protest and fight for actual change. As Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. urged, we must never put the pursuit of peace above the pursuit of justice. That's from his letter from a Birmingham jail. This is an electrified time in world history, and 2020 will be remembered and studied as a time of tremendous upheaval and positive rebellion. We all have the opportunity to join in this surge against the injustice of anti-Black racism and meaningfully change the systems around us. The civil rights movement is still happening today. Participate in it with your body, with your dollars, with your actions. Amazing. Yay, so amazing. Go find the rest of that article. Yes, we'll post we'll it with the uh, with the podcast episode when it comes out on our social media, on our Facebook page, etc. Um and so we wanna do oh, I just wanted to say yeah, thank please. you. Thanks for reading it, thanks for writing it, and thanks for sharing yeah, there's more to breathe there. But thank you so much for sharing that, Nicole. That was awesome. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you for receiving it. So <laughs> it's a lovely way. Yeah. <laughs> well, thank you. In our last segment, um we do this or that pandemic edition. So we Amazing. are going to ask you a series of questions that will break down how you spent your quarantine and what kind of habits you developed during this pandemic. Oh, um, boy. I don't want to scrutinize my habits too much. <laughs> oh, gosh, no. And if you feel like you need to expand, expand. But if not, um, here we go. Okay. Early riser or night owl? Night owl. Night owl? <laughs> yeah, staying up till 2 a.m. <laughs> Sweats or dressed? Sweats or dressed? Sweats or dressed. Oh. Like dressed, dressed like up, nice clothes. You mean? Yeah, like oh, you put real clothes on. Uh, <laughs> dressed up, dressed up. Yeah. Nice. Uh, bake all day or takeaway? Takeaway. Takeaway. What's your favorite order? What do you order usually? Uh, I get Chinese food, like authentic Chinese food mm-hmm. from Chinatown. Mm, I get a yum. lot of like delivery dim sum, and then I eat it all week. Yum, nice. Uh, DIY yeah. or online buy? Uh, you know, I used to be DIY, but I'm a little busy right now. So yeah, just a little. Recently, it's been online buy. <laughs> You're just a little busy, huh? Yeah. <laughs> Nicole's doing everything right yeah, now. Yeah. <laughs> um, homemade mask or bought one? 
uh, a homemade mask, but I'm not the one who made it. Right, yes. I bought it from a person who homemade it. All my masks are from, I, I, I like to support local people that are making masks in their homes as their like, side hustle business. Nice. So I have a bunch of be- really beautiful fabric masks that were homemade by friends. That's nice. amazing. Um, Zoom party or Zoom fatigue? Zoom party fatigue? I like Zoom, actually. I, I would say Zoom party. Nice. Tiger King or The Last Dance? I haven't seen either of them, but I don't think I care. If I'm going to give you a pandemic TV watching recommendation, yes. I May Destroy You on yes. HBO oh, by so Nicola Coel <laughs> is stunning. It's, it's, an, so... it's an exploration of a woman's path to healing after she is sexually assaulted while well, she's raped in a bar. Mm-hmm. And which sounds really like it wouldn't be fun to watch. And it's intense, but it is fun to watch. Like she's very funny and it's very charming and real. And it's a, I think it's the best look at millennial culture I've ever seen. Totally. Yeah. Um, Absolutely. And it had, it handles race, sexuality, consent, sex, career, trauma, self-sabotage, yeah. humor, joy. It's just, it's just wonderful. I, I watched it. I binged it in two nights, 10 episodes. I couldn't stop watching it and I can't stop thinking about it. Nice. And I think if anyone has ever experienced is an artist has ever experienced trauma or a major setback the way that Michaela Cole navigates you through that process and she is somebody who it did actually happen to her she had a very successful run of a play that became a tv series called chewing gum which is also amazing highly recommend um and then she was raped and Mm -hmm. this is her this is her response coming forward to come up with a new series while healing from that trauma and it is so stunning and so truthful and so searing but also so funny and so vibrant and so alive it's so special it's i think she's going to come home with a wagon load of emmys i don't know how she, she could possibly it. not win every every yeah. bafta every every possible award for this seminal piece of television yeah. highly recommend yeah agreed and it's like it's kind of triggering if you have an assault background but it's like it's less triggering than you'd think for what it is because it's done so sensitively and through the gaze of a black woman who really understands what it is to be harmed and really yeah. deals with it sensitively and her best friend is a uh, one of her two best friends is a black gay man and it, it handles grinder culture and hookup culture yeah. Yeah. and gay sexuality in a way that I think looks very truthful um, it's just it's so respectful and it's so well done I can't stop talking about it I will stop talking about it <laughs> no it's amazing it's amazing it's on Crave so, yeah um, Nicole, what's been your favorite quarantine jam, music-wise? Silence. 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 That's fair. I love silence. That's oh, you know fair. what? Also, I I'm a big supporter of Cardi B and nice. the WAP song. Yeah, <laughs> I thought was such an amazing example of um, female empowerment, female desire, female joy, female sexuality, and the responses to it were entirely predictable and entirely rooted in misogyny and racism. Yep. And uh, it's such a fun song, and I love Cardi B. She's one of the few celebrities that always speaks up for every issue. She's speaking up right now against voter suppression. Mm -hmm. She's Latina, so she's talking to the Latinx community in Spanish and in English to talk to them about how to vote properly um, and to make sure that the the Latinx vote is not suppressed in urban United States. Um, And she's so funny, and she's so cool, and she lives so hard, and I just admire and like her so much. And she loves her family and... She's wonderful. I mean, she's and she's completely unapologetic about who she is. And I take so much inspiration from her. I love her so much. Amazing. And last question. What's your ultimate quarantine location anywhere in the world? Oh, boy. Uh, I guess like a small island where there's cool stuff to do and nice weather and there's not and COVID's been eradicated. So is that yeah, New yes. Zealand, I guess? <laughs> yes. <laughs> 
<laughs> let's all go to New Zealand right now. Um, New Zealand apparently has a backlog yeah. of 20,000 unprocessed visas. One of my friends is trying to move there. And everyone wants to go to New Zealand right now. And they're like, right. no. No, no you can't come in there, please. <laughs> Um, Nicole, thank you so much for joining us. This has been fantastic. You are, yeah, I'm just in awe of you always and um, just so appreciate your time and energy. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me. What a pleasure to talk to you both. Yeah. And I'm, I really, I'm glad you're doing this podcast. I've enjoyed listening to the other episodes. Hi to everybody who's been on when you guys are talking. <laughs> um, you thank you to anyone who's listening to this. It's lovely to, to, to know that in the midst of having a season shut down, that the Thousand Islands Playhouse is still creating something and moving art forward so thank you for for spearheading this we're trying our best we also want to thank mark hunt who is our head carpenter who composed the music for this podcast Uh, this podcast is produced by my fm gananokwe thanks to terry lynn for all her help we're recording today on the traditional land of the huron-wendat haudenosaunee peoples follow us at thousandislandsplayhouse.com bye nicole bye thank you you. bye, bye martha thank you so much have a great day you too